The Holy Gospel according to Matthew, the 13th chapter. The same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. Such great crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat there, while the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, Listen, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell on the path, and birds came and ate them up. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and they sprang up quickly, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and brought forth grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Let anyone with ears listen. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what is sown in the heart. This is what was sown on the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet such a person has no root, but endures only for a while. And when trouble or persecution arises on account of the word, that person immediately falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the lure of wealth choke the word, and it yields nothing. But as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. The Gospel of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. I trust all of you enjoyed our most recent national holiday, July 4th, celebrating perhaps with family, friends, enjoying some good things hot off the grill, and maybe enjoying a few backyard pyrotechnics. July 4th is a wonderful holiday. And you know what we were celebrating? On another hot July 4th, the Second Continental Congress met together in the steamy city of Philadelphia to ratify the Declaration of Independence. And I think all of you know from that day until now, almost all of American history has been shaped by the cherished words found in that document. I especially like the second paragraph. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 
And if you have eyes better than mine, as you look up there, you can see the word happiness. Happiness with a capital H, mind you. A capital H. Many of the words in the Declaration of Independence were penned by Thomas Jefferson. And again, those words are embedded in our cultural DNA. We live for them, and many Americans have died for them. We Americans pursue happiness with gusto. We love happiness. We love being happy. We say to each other, oh, just be happy. We have our happy hours. Our grandchildren have their happy meals, thanks to Ronald McDonald. And Penn State fans, they have a special place of happiness. There in the mountains of central Pennsylvania, they have what they call Happy Valley. Some years ago, I saw a bumper sticker that captured rather well what most, un most Americans understand to be happiness. Slide number two, please. Have you seen it? He who dies with the most toys wins. That slogan has been around for some time and there are others like it. Life is short, enjoy it while you can and so on and so forth. For many Americans, happiness is having the leisure to enjoy, take pleasure in all the many things they have worked hard to acquire. And I think we all believe in this country that we do have a right and we have the potential to acquire just about anything we want. As long as we do not steal that thing from someone else, and as long as we never harm them when we play with our toys. Well, happiness along the lines of that bumper sticker are just splashing around, I think, in the shallow end of the pool of happiness. If you've been to Virginia and made the drive up to the top of a lovely hill, Monticello, and toward the grounds, you know Jefferson had lots and lots of toys. He lived in the midst of a very pleasurable and beautiful place. But given the history of his day, and given the many personal tragedies he's experienced, I'm pretty sure Jefferson understood that property and toys could be enjoyed on any given day and gone the next. So I don't think he ever put a bumper sticker like that on the back of one of his carriages, nor on the hind parts of any of the horses he rode on his many journeys. No, Jefferson did not ascribe to the common notion that happiness resides in the enjoyments and pleasures we derive from our property and our possessions. But what then was his concept of happiness? And why did he associate so closely happiness with life and liberty? Well, historians disagree, but I think the most likely answer is that he borrowed that phrase, changing it a little bit, 
from a British writer and philosopher by the name of John Locke. Locke wrote this, the necessity of happiness is the foundation of liberty. As therefore the highest perfection of the intellectual nature lies in a careful and constant pursuit of true and solid happiness. True and solid happiness. That's happiness with a capital H. Locke said happiness is the very foundation of our liberty. And he emphasized to his readers that this happiness is not imaginary. It doesn't await us somewhere else, another time or another place. It can be found in our days. It can be true, solid, real. We can have it in our lifetimes. Well, were Locke's thoughts on happiness and liberty his own, or did he borrow them from someone else? Like Jefferson, Locke borrowed much of what he had to say about happiness from an earlier writer. Next slide, please. That writer's name was Aristotle, a well-known, famous, and cherished Greek philosopher. And there you can see the dates, the bookends of his life. He taught, he wrote, he observed. He was a remarkable man. And now that I have you on the edge of your seats, anxious to hear what old Aristotle said about this foundation under life and liberty, this happiness, you're not on the edge of your seats? You don't want to find out more about happiness with a capital H? Well, he wrote about it. He wrote a book on ethics. And in that book, he talks about real, tangible, human happiness. Next slide, please. His word for happiness in Greek was eudaimonia. Literally, it means having good Demons, frequently translated as happiness. A better translation would be having a good spirit, to flourish, to have well-being. Not just health, good being, a good spirit inside. And Aristotle observed that almost all human beings pursue this kind of happiness, grounded in well-being. All human beings want to flourish, grow, thrive, prosper. And then Aristotle went on to link this term happiness with another well-known Greek noun. Next slide, please. Arete. In English, usually translated as virtue, moral excellence, habits of the character, characters, habits inside each of us, good habits, habits like courage, love, 
generosity, temperance, wittiness, friendliness, generosity. To flourish is to have these good habits of character. To be happy is to live the good life, the moral life, the virtuous life. For Aristotle, happiness is not just having things and enjoying those things, wealth, honor, pleasure. Happiness is grounded in each of us on the inside. Living well, having a good spirit, living a life filled with good, virtuous action. In Aristotle's view, happiness can't be separated from goodness, a goodness that lies within. To be happy, we must be good. To be good is to possess a good spirit. So now we are right back where we started. Happiness is having a good spirit within. But don't make a mistake of thinking that this goodness that resides inside, that's manifest in our actions, was a means to a greater end. That is, being good in this lifetime may perhaps bring the reward of a greater happiness in the afterlife in an eternal happy valley? No. Happiness for Aristotle is not a means to an end. It is the end itself. Being good today and tomorrow. It can be pursued and it can be found in our lifetime. Well, now, before we leave Aristotle and his word behind, his world behind, there's one more thing we need to share with you. One more thing about this pursuit of happiness. Aristotle and others saw that as human beings sought to flourish, finding it was not always easy. So many in the ancient world spoke of a two-part human nature, a two-part human psychology. There is the lower part, the flesh. With the flesh comes all kinds of desires, all kinds of passions, all kinds of needs. If you have a body, you have these passions. They come with this baggage. There is, however, Aristotle and others believed, a second part, our higher nature, our better nature, that sets us apart from all the other creatures. And this wonderful gift was called the reason, our intellects, our minds, So in this model, you have two parts, a lower part. If you want to know what that part is, pinch really hard right here, right now. You'll feel something, will you not? But then there is the other part that resides up here.
And according to this old ancient anthropology, there is always a struggle going on within each of us. Next slide, please. So how do you win in this struggle? You come to possess through learning and training and discipline what the ancients called inkratea, self-mastery, self-control. Aristotle and other writers like him understood that most of the evil that transpires in the world, all the hurt, all the harm, all the violence we humans do to each other, even to our loved ones, is because of this struggle. Our lower nature, our feelings, our passions, our desires overriding our higher nature. Evil, Real evil is caused by passions that have gone unchecked. We need self-mastery. By having self-mastery, self-control, one could be set free from the tyranny of the passions and follow the dictates of one's mind and one's heart. Human desires were not necessarily bad, not necessarily evil, but they could be dangerous, they could be powerful, and they could be very prone to act independently of the higher nature, the mind, the intellect. So all of humanity was engaged in a war, they thought, engaged in this struggle to master the passions All humans have a fragmented personality. We have our good, higher nature, and then we have our lower demons. We have our flesh, we have our mind, and then we have, too, our soul, our spirit. And just like all those old black and white westerns you saw on TV back when you were younger, all of them depicting this struggle between good and evil, guys wearing white hats, guys wearing black hats. Well, just about everywhere in the Roman world in Paul's day, there was a series that you could watch, that you could enjoy, a never-ending series depicting this struggle between humankind's upper better nature and the lower nature. Those depictions of that struggle were embedded in many plays, stories, novels, and everyone in the world in Paul's day were familiar with them. And often if you saw just one series of this struggle, you would usually hear a character speaking of their need for deliverance. You would hear a passionate cry for life, liberty, and happiness from someone engaged in this struggle between the flesh and spirit. Here is an example. I am being overcome by evils I know that what I am about to do is evil. 
but passion is stronger than my reasoned reflection, and this is the cause of the worst evils for humans. O wretched one, drive out these flames that you feel. Words like those repeated themselves over and over and over again. Does that heartfelt cry for freedom sound familiar? If not, listen to this eloquent, passionate plea for freedom. I am of the flesh, sold into slavery under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but in my members I see another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? That cry for freedom is found in one of Scripture's most controversial chapters, Romans 7. It's the voice of a Gentile crying out, the voice of a Gentile searching for happiness, searching for self-mastery, searching for a new life grounded in freedom, liberty, and of course, happiness. It is the voice of a Gentile God-fearer who has joined himself to a Jewish community in Rome, hoping to find there freedom to do the good, freedom that comes through self-control, self-mastery, you see, the Jews of Paul's day were really good evangelists. They said to the world, you Gentiles, you have been looking for happiness and self-mastery in all the wrong places. Come, join our academy. Study the Torah with us. Embrace its teachings. Discover the truth. Grow in wisdom with us, and with us find happiness. And so they did, those God-fearers in Rome. They studied the Torah, which laid out for them a lovely map of the good life as decreed by God Himself. But knowing the good was not good enough. And that's why we hear at the end of chapter 7 this statement, So then... With my mind, I am a slave to the law of God, but with my flesh, I am a slave to the law of sin. Mind versus flesh. A mind that knows the good, but cannot do it because of the desires and passions of the flesh. Wow. Now we know the tyrant, don't we? 
not the Roman emperor. It is a tyrant that dwells within. It is the tyranny of the flesh with its many desires and passions. This tyrant squelches each and every inclination to do the good. This tyrant enslaves. It leaves in its wake only death. And this tyrant has a name. Paul calls it sin. But Paul's not finished. If I could have the next slide. The dilemma. O wretched one, drive out these flames that you feel. The flames of the flesh. A cry for deliverance. And we hear the answer to that cry in the very next chapter of Romans, Romans 8. Next slide, please. In Romans 8, that text that was read for you, Paul rings the bell of freedom. The liberty bell. Proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. And that's what Paul sings out in Romans chapter 8. He rings out the cheery good news of life, liberty, and happiness that has been won for people of faith through Jesus Christ and the Spirit. Romans 8 is the New Testament's boldest, clearest, loveliest proclamation of freedom and independence. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Paul is saying to his Gentile audience, you are now free at last. God has sent his Son and his Spirit to bring you freedom. 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 A gracious gift of three freedoms. Freedom from the passions of the flesh. Freedom from sin. Freedom from eternal death. And Paul says, you now have the gift of happiness. Happiness with a capital H. How is all this possible in Paul's mind? It's possible because God has done what he had promised to do long ago. As he spoke to his people through the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel when he said through them he would free his people. Not by just giving them more rules and regulations and a code of conduct, but by making with them a new covenant and sending to them the Spirit. And what would that Spirit do? That Spirit would enter in and that Spirit would fashion in God's people New hearts, new minds, a new upper nature that would know and will and do God's 
good. Or as Paul says elsewhere, hearts and minds willing and able to fulfill the law of Christ. This is happiness with a capital H. Yes, in Romans 7 and 8, Paul uses just about all of the metaphors floating in that broad, deep river of Greek and Roman moral psychology to present to his readers a wonderful gospel and to let them know that they are free. In conclusion, just listen to a few more words from Paul found in his letter to the Galatians where he describes the happiness, the flourishing, the well-being, the good spirit that comes from God himself. But the fruit of the spirit, the virtues of the spirit, the characters of habit that now reside in you are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-mastery. And there is no law against such things. Dear people, our Liberty Bell has sounded it has indeed come. Find your happiness, find your freedom by walking in the promised Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.